Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's my great pleasure to welcome you all here to St. Catharines for the Cameron Mackintosh Lecture by Claude Michel Schoenberg. I've just got some notes to inform you of a few things about Claude Michel that you may or may not know. So Claude Michel was born in 1944 in Van, Brittany, France. His parents were Hungarian. His father was a piano tuner and repairer and his mother assisted with the varnishing of the instruments. He began his career as a record producer for EMI, singer and composer of pop songs, before focusing on composing music for musical theatre. His first success was with La Révolution Française in 1973, when he was 29, and this show marked the beginning of the long-standing and highly successful collaboration between him and, musical and the musical uh, theatre lyricist Alain Boublil. In 1978, Claude Michel and Alain began work on their musical adaption of Victor Hugo's epic no novel Les Miserables. The musical was premiered in 1980 at the Palais des Sports in Paris to great critical acclaim. In 1982, two years later, Hungarian director Peter Farago introduced Cameron Mackintosh to the concept album of the musical. Cameron instantly recognized the musical as something very special, and so approached Claude Michel and Alain about collaborating with them to adapt it for the West End stage. Cameron was to be the producer of the show, whilst lyricist Herbert Kretzmer worked on translating the French text into English. The new Les Miserables opened at the Barbican Theatre in 1985. <clears throat> Though the initial response from the critics was unfavourable, it was a resounding success with the public, and within three days, the two-month run was completely sold out. On transferal to Broadway in 1987, it was nominated for 12 Tony Awards, winning eight, including Best Musical and Best Original Score. It also won a Grammy for Best Music Show Album. The musical has been running continuously since then, making it the longest running musical in the West End. It was adapted for film in 2012, for which Claude Michel received nomination at both the Golden Globes and the Academy Awards for the film exclusive song, Suddenly. <coughs> Claude Michel went on to see great success with subsequent works. He composed the music for the musical Miss Saigon, which premiered in 1989, Martin Gurr, 1996, which won the Laurence Olivier Award for the Best New Musical, The Pirate Queen, 2006, and Marguerite, 2008. He has also composed music for the ballets Wuthering Heights, 2001, and Cleopatra, 2011. In 2003, Claude Michel appeared on the BBC Radio 4's Desert Island Discs. And if you haven't heard the programme, I'm delighted to reveal to you that Beim Schlagengegen by Richard Strauss is his favourite track. All the Little Life Things by Wallace Earl Stegner is his chosen book. And his luxury item is a grand piano. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Claude Michel today 
along with his wife Charlotte, his son Thomas, and other close friends. And Claude Michel's lecture tonight is entitled Creation and Immigration. Claude Michel. So I have nothing else to say because that was the last section of my speech for tonight. <laughs> because they told me you have to explain who you are, what you did in your life, and that's it. So <laughs> you know everything. Anyway, when Nick Allot and Roger offered me the Cameron Macintosh from the Cameron Macintosh Foundation, the offered to be an invited professor in Oxford with pleasure because it was an honor. I accepted it. And it was in the middle of the campaign for Brexit or not Brexit. <laughs> so I decided that my speech, because you're going to realize very quick that I'm a foreigner. I have a strong... <laughs> I'm a, I have a very strong accent. So my speech was about being a composer and being an immigrant, because I am an immigrant. And my speech is creation and immigration. And you know the result. And the result is a democratic process that we must all respect. But I would like to start giving you my vision of the world where we are living. As a composer, Europe for me, it's being part of the culture, of the richest culture in the world from the ancient Greek to the present day. Because the European culture has been invading the world from Tokyo to Buenos Aires, from Sydney to the north of Canada. And it's a free space for me where I can travel, where I can give my creation my music. So that's one aspect of being European as a composer. As an immigrant, Europe, it's not an opportunity of business or doing good financial deals. Europe, as an immigrant, it's a promise of peace. On a continent where all the countries has been, have been on wars for centuries and centuries, and in that space of peace, because I'm lucky enough to be one of the very rare generation who has all life without any war. I don't know what is to be on war in your own country. And that never did happen on the continent of Europe before. There was always a war each 20, 30 years. So that's another aspect of Europe. 
It's a promise of, of peace in a continent where I am free to go and to move. Because for creator, borders are totally irrelevant. A creator must be free to go where he wants because it's a necessity to have exchanges of ideas of persons for a culture. If a culture has no diversity, culture becomes a diktat, a diktat from a regime who tell you that's what you have to do. Culture by nature must be diverse and must be open to all the ideas and all the creators from all over the world. So for creators, there is no borders and no walls, no borders must exist. As culture, it's practically the base of what we call a civilization. They are heavily linked together. So all my purpose for tonight is to tell you that immigration it's indispensable for culture. It means indispensable for a civilization. And art, it's one of the most important part of the culture. It's not all the culture, but it's one of the main part of the, of the culture. And the part of the culture that we call art, it's because art has no purpose. Creation has no purpose when you think creation in the art. You can imagine that somebody is creating a beautiful building, but it's a building. There is a purpose. It's for people to live there or people to work. Art, there is no purpose for art. And I want to be clear about what we're talking about, so I'm going to give you, and I've been looking very carefully about definitions, what a civilization is and what culture is. So I'm going to read, because I want to be sure that I'm very clear. Civilization, the social stage of a social development and organization which is considered most advanced. So it's a stage. It means civilization is in constant movement. At the moment, you check a civilization, it's the civilization at this very moment, and there will be an evolution. Culture is the manifestation of a human very important word, collective achievement in the civilization. So the definitions are very important because we're talking about a human achievement. And why, I wanted to start by, why do we have, you all imagine that we were talking about music and everything, not very much. There is far more uh, big pictures to, to talk about. 
where, from where is coming that necessity of creation? Why do we need to create something as human? It means where, from where is coming the arts, the culture, and the civilization. There is a wonderful quotation by Sigmund Freud telling that the first man who threw an insult instead of throwing a stone was the creator of civilization, which is very interesting. But of course for the searcher, civilization starts when searching and digging, they find what I will call a funeral ritual. When they start to find bodies in a certain situation, position, surrounded by familiar objects, it means that there was a civilization there. And sometimes it can be hundreds of thousand years ago. It, why? Because the fact that there is a ritual for funeral means that there is a belief in something else after death. It, it's belief about a life after a life. It's the belief that there is a superior force above you ruling the world. And that's what the searchers have decided to, to say that at the beginning there is a civilization there. When they start to see a ritual for funeral. And of course the belief that there is a superior force, it's what they call the gods or God, because you can imagine for the first man when he heard for the first time the thunderstorm, a volcano erupting, the rain, the drought, floods, everything was a manifestation of the, this superior force of God. And God was at the limit of the knowledge it's still at the limit of the knowledge. You have Russian astrophysician trying to prove that God doesn't exist. But at the end, they realize that there is something there that you might call God, but there is still a very strong spirit who organize the whole universe where we are. So those people in the early ages, they thought that there is two ways to please the gods. You can offer, or you can pray, you can do ceremony, offering stuff for the gods to be pleased. But all this was through singing, dance, and where it, it was 
The purpose was to please the gods, to ask them to do something, to bring good omen on the population. That's why the first form of art was a kind of religious art. That's what you find in grottos where you have animals with arrows. It's, well, it's to get good hunting. All the dances for the warriors to win a battle. It was the ancestor of the famous Akka that the rugby New Zealand team are still singing today. And the music too was part of it. The singing was part of it. The purpose was to please the gods. So the gods won't bring disaster to the population. But how to express that? Because the beginning of the arts means that there is no words. We are very limited in our vocabulary to talk to the God, to have a communication with the gods. So they use this device to, have a, uh, to be in trance through music and rhythm. And trance, it's traditionally a moment when you are in communication with the gods, when you can ask them about the present, about a good harvest, about the future, what's going to happen. So how to achieve that? They add in front of them what we call the mimesis. It means the nature. Birds are singing. So they were singing like the birds. And still, in old days, you have a composer like Olivier Messian. He spent his whole life, he died two, three years ago, but he spent his whole life trying to reproduce you his work of music and operas, the song of the bird. You have the bird, you have the noise, the percussion, clapping your hand was practically the first percussion. When you have a gorilla in the jungle doing that, that was the origin of all this form of art that allowed them to communicate with the gods. And there is a very interesting place on the earth. This place is called Tanalot. It's on the island of it's in Indonesia, on the big island. No, it's in Bali, exactly. It's a small cape, and there is a grotto with holes, very famous for the snake inside the holes, by the sea. But there is a full plantation of bamboo trees. I don't know if you have been there already. A full plantation of bamboo trees, and when the wind is coming from a perfect direction, all the bamboo, they start to play like an organ. And according to the strength of the wind, you have different notes. So that was an example of how you can create 
music and sound through the nature. At the very early stage, of course, it was considered like something magic. So that was a good way to communicate to the gods and to do music. At the same time, everything was a way. Hearts talking to the gods. It was a good way to express once again what, what words can say. It was a way to express your unconscious or what is conscious in you. Arts was a language, but there was something else too that we have to learn from the Greek. And, sorry, it looks very serious. Huh? You're looking at me like a, I take it lighter than you imagine. <laughs> but, but there is a wonderful place on Earth. It's called Delphi. It's in Greece. A lot of you have been there, I'm sure. That was, for the Greek, the center of the world. Because Zeus once threw a stone, and the stone fell in a place called Delphi, and the stone is still there. And for the ancient Greek, like for the Muslims going to the Mecca, it was a tradition to go at least once in his life to Delphi. Delphi was a place for a kind of treatment, you have bath. On the first day, on the second day, you used to go the fortune teller called the pity, who was telling you if the future was good or bad for you. But the third day was a day to attend a drama. And that's all very interesting, because that's a lot of consequences on the work I'm doing and on the arts on everything. There is in Delphi a huge theater, Roman theater, practically for 3,000 people. And they used to attend on the last day of their visit to Delphi a drama. But there was one condition for the drama to be shown. And the condition was that the subject of the drama was helping the audience to solve their own problems. Otherwise, it was not a good drama. And there, we are exactly in relation with what we are doing today. That's what they call the catharsis. I mean, a part of you is on stage. A part of your problem is on stage and you want to be on stage with them to share what they're showing to you and they can express and bring to the surface the problem you have inside you. So that was in Delphi and it's highly interesting because when I'm talking to the student about what a good subject, or what's a wrong subject, here we are. We go back to the ancient ring. Can the subject can help the audience to solve the problems they have. It's very, very important.
Coming back to immigration, I wanted to check with you, because it's so important in the story of art. Can somebody tell me who is Jacob Gershowitz? It's George Gershwin. Israel Isidore Bailey. That's simple, no? Irving Berlin. Richard Rogadzinski. Richard Rogers, exactly. But there is somebody you don't know. Charles Romuald Gardes. Charles Romuald Gardes. Born in Toulouse, France, in 1890. He went to Argentina and he took a name to be a singer, Carlos Gardel. And in Argentina, he is the iconic, the ultimate tango singers. He has statue, he is a legend. He has portrait everywhere, and he was a French immigrant from Toulouse. So immigration is all part of this evolution of the cultures. I mean, evolution of the civilization, because again, a civilization, a culture, must be in constant move, or is not a culture. It's not a civilization. Or it's good for totalitarianism or for totally closed country. So we were, I left you in Delphi. And of course, in the old days, the evolution of the civilization and culture was very, very slow because there was random communication from country to countries. On the road, there was a lot of wars. The exchange were not as easy as it is today. To learn about a book, you had to wait that somebody coming from a foreign country bring you a book and maybe a translation for you to understand. For the music, it was exactly the same thing. You had to wait to receive a score to know what was happening abroad, far away. There was the famous piece of music called the Miserere in the Vatican written by uh, Allegri, yes. It was a sacred music. They were allowed to play it only in the Vatican. It's a 20-minute piece. And the first time that the rest of Europe was able to know what it was, it was the day when Mozart, at 12 years old, 14 years old, came to the Vatican with his father. 
and they heard the miserere by Allegri. And Mozart, 20 minutes of music, sophisticated orchestration and choirs, came back home and just by memory recopied exactly what he has heard and he went back the following day to check that his score was correct. And that was the first time that the music from Allegri, this miserere, was allowed to go out of the Vatican and the rest of the world was able to listen to it. Because before, communication was very poor. They knew only what was going on around them. And until the Renaissance, it was something, sometime they heard about what's, what was going far away or not. And remember, the evolution was very slow too, because the society was kind of autarky, because there was not a lot of communication. They used to live in a very narrow society. Sometime at the very early stage, it was tribal, tribes living together. And the words who can happen for a society living in autarky or for a, a tribe, it's innovation and changes. Because the purpose of that kind of population is not to create any tension or any controversy. And innovation and changes was the possibility of the beginning of a controversy and to destroy the harmony and the balance in that population. So innovation and chance was not very welcome. And in those days, arts was only about a reproduction, exact reproduction of what it used to be before. That's what you see in the Orthodox churches, the icons, they are exactly a reproduction of what they used to do before. They could not reproduce it by printing because it did not exist, so they were doing new painting but reproducing exactly what it was before. It's true for the theater too. The no theater in Japan, the kabuki theater in Japan, it's only about reproduction without innovation of what they have done before. So this, the evolution was very, very slow until the Renaissance when new ideas arrived from Italy about the prestige of the art, the beauty of the art, because I forgot to tell you in the way to please the gods, very early, beauty and pleasure are working together. So to please the God, there was that notion of beauty. But beauty in the arts, it's not to speak about beautiful subject. It's to speak beautifully about any subject. 
And by beauty, I don't mean what we think is beauty. I mean <coughs> the great quality of what you're producing. So that notion of beauty and pleasure was very early linked with art. Because even in a work describing something terrible in operas, about dramas and everything, there is a kind of beauty that you can't deny. Because it's part of the pleasure, even if it's about something terrible, there is beauty in it. Roger was mentioning the Richard Strauss work. It can be some, you have some terrible moment in his work, but it's still beauty. Beauty, or if you want to choose another word, great quality. So, very soon during the Renaissance, from Italy, some prince, some pop, because the pops were very involved with that. They had that notion of power, prestige, showing off, was very involved with the hearts, with the beauty of the hearts. And that's an idea we arrive all over the continent, and mainly with the French king Francis I, who interpreted me in a competition of hearts with Henry VIII, your king. Francis I asked Leonardo da Vinci to come to France, to work for him. And in those days, those people, because the prince were giving their money, they were benefactors. That was the only way they managed to, it was a commission for a city or commission from the priest. But they used to work in workshop with students. That's why we called them maestro, because they were the teacher. And sometimes when you see a painting by Leonardo da Vinci, you're not completely sure that he did the painting. It, it might do a part of the painting, a section of it. But maybe the rest was by the student. So, through the Renaissance, the people, the masters, started, and that's very important, to sign their work. Because before, when the art was only a repetition of what has been done, they didn't have that sense of intellectual property. They didn't sign the work. In Egypt, in a tomb, no artist was signing his drawing. There is no beautiful object from 7,000 years old which any signature. It started with the Renaissance, that feeling of intellectual property where you can sign your work. And improvement of communication, period of peace, means that from this moment, they were able to exchange innovation, discovery, because we take it for granted, the oil painting. But not at all. It started in Flanders in the 15th century. 
by a painter called Jerome Van Eyck. He managed to do painting with the oil. And that was a huge revolution for painting, instead of painting with blending earth with water. The life of the painting, the resistance, was something much more important, and it was, the, it was supposed to stay longer that, and not destroying the work because of the time passing by. So that was a huge innovation, and it came very fast from Flanders to Italy, to France, to, Ger to all the little uh, kingdom in, in Germany and all over Europe. The, we take for granted that you have a painting on a canvas. The canvas did not exist before. They used to paint on walls or on board of wood. That was very heavy. When it was too big, you couldn't move it. And in some very humid country, they started to paint on canvas, finishing with a varnish to protect the canvas. But canvas, you take it, you roll it, it's very light. You can do big canvas. You can travel with it very easily. So that was a major innovation for the painting, the canvas. By the same time, or a little bit later, but after the Renaissance, you had a lot of innovation for painting, for music. You had Antonio Stradivari in Cremona. He started to change the shape of the violin, to change the varnish, and he created brand new violin that still 300 years after or 400 years after are still the best violin in the world. And exchange of ideas, immigration, person traveling from one country to the other. They were bringing, they were showing those new ideas. And on top of that, it's not only technical innovation was important, like the oil for the painting of canvas or the varnish of Stradivari, of Stradivari, but apparition of a new form of art had huge consequences. For instance, do you know, I'm trying to put some life in this, <laughs> very serious stuff. Do you know when was done the first photography in the world? Do you have any idea? It was in 1823 by a young guy called Nicephor Nieps. He took a picture from his window of an empty street in 1823. And you realize, thinking about it, that the invention of photography, it's quite the beginning of a big change in paintings. Because painting, until that time, was only to reproduce the reality, to do portraits, to do a landscape. But know that the photography was existing and developing 
all around Europe and even the world with communication and everything, that's when they started the post-impressionist moment. I mean, painting was not anymore to reproduce the reality, but to reproduce the feeling of the reality. So you have the post-impressionist, the impressionist, and all the modern arts we know. And it all started practically at the same time as the invention of the photography. So the apparition of a new form of art through all the communication, and communication I mean exchange of ideas, immigration, people traveling from one country to, to another. There is a spreading of new technique, of new way. There were painters coming from America to learn in Europe that new way to paint. And there is a big school of American Impressionists too. But it all started practically at the same time as the invention of the photography. And when a heart has no evolution, when there is no evolution change in your culture, no new ideas or civilization, you are totally frozen. You are in USSR when the only show they were able to, to give to foreigners coming was Swan Lake again, again, and again, and again, like in the very old days, reproducing exactly what they used to do with no innovation. It was in China during the tough of the communist regime, the red-haired girl, always the same ballet, for the foreign visitors, ex doing exactly the same thing. It's what's happening in North Korea today. That's what they used to have in Albania, under the regime of Hanver Ojda. Of course, there were some people, some real creators, but they have to work underground and never to show their work because their work was classified as decadence, anti-communist, anti-regime, and they could have been in the gulag or in jail for life for showing their innovation in their work. So a culture, a civilization, an art with no evolution, with no exchange of ideas, with no immigration, no free movement of person, it's something completely dead because when you don't have art, you don't have culture, you, you, have, you don't have any civilization, but if you still exist, what do you have? You have a race. And that's why art is the only difference between animals and humans. Of course, somebody will tell me that there is a little fish in the Pacific Ocean doing cycle in the sand, perfect cycle, but it's to attract the female. <laughs> so there is a purpose there. Art has no purpose, and that's the only difference between us, us and the animals. Otherwise, we are only a race. For millions of years, you have cats, you have elephants, 
You have monkey, giraffe. They are born, they live, they eat, they reproduce themselves, they die. They don't need art. They don't need creation. They are okay like that. But they are animals and we are human. We are conscious of our existence. It means we are conscious of our death and we are conscious of the forces above us. And it's the language of the heart who helps us to communicate with those forces above us. Even when you are in a theater, all together, that community that you feel watching a show, it's part of that forces above you. It's stronger than you are. That's why art, it's not for the animals, it's only human. And when I was talking about the definition of the culture, you remember I was pointing that a very important word, manifestation of a human collective achievement. Because arts is not for animals. Anyway, I'm a little bit lost in my paper, but I'm going to find it. So, do we have, there was some years ago uh, a book about the, what's happening, the biology of love. I don't know if some of you have read it. It was what is happening in your body when you're falling in love. It's a kind of revolution of your hormones. There is an activity in your brains. And it was very interesting because it's another way to describe not only but emotions, feelings. It's coming from somewhere. If it's coming from your brain or from your heart or whatever you call it, there is something, a biologic element entering in that emotion. And do we have the equivalent for the heart? Yes, it exists. Because between 1980 and 1990, you have an Italian scientist called Rizzoletti. He put a lot of sensors on the head of a monkey, and he was studying his reaction. And he realized that when the monkey was watching another monkey jumping, he had the activities in his brain as if it was jumping himself. And that was a big discovery. I'm doing a theory of it for the work I'm doing. But I think somewhere it's working. That's what he called the mirror neurons. And that was a very important discovery because, of course, they found it in monkeys, in dogs, but they found it too in the human brain, in our brain. So I'm going to tell you where because I can't know all this by heart. We have mirror neurons. 
in the premotor cortex, in the supplementary motor area, in the primary somatosensory cortex, and in the inferior parietal cortex. It means that when you're watching the Olympic Games and you see somebody jumping, in your brain, you have neurons starting to be activated exactly as if you have to jump yourself. And if you take the theory a little bit further, that's what's happening when you're watching a movie, an action movie. When you're very young, little kids, you see them standing up and starting to, uh, to scream and shout because they are totally in the action. Because in their brain, their brain is working exactly the way as the protagonist on the screen. I'm not going to mention the X-rated movie, but you see that there is an interaction. <laughs> it might be part of the neural neuron, I'm not sure, I don't know, but it certainly is. But what you, when you're watching a play, when you're watching a musical, because that's my job, you are there, the audience, but we are back to Delphi, the catharsis. You're watching on stage, and a part of your life, a part of yourself, your brain is acting as the people on stage, or the protagonists on stage, as or the characters are acting. I mean, you have an activity in your brains exactly the same as if you were in that situation. A part of you is on stage. We all have mirror neurons. And that explains to you that kind of mirror that you have in front of you, even in a painting, in a statue. It's a straight connection between you and the creation. And of course, during the next day, or the few days of my workshop here with a student, mainly, my job is to teach them how to fill the gap between what their intentions are and what is the reception of the audience because they don't have any clue sometimes what they're giving and what the other are receiving. They don't have any clue. It means that the new mirror neurons get the wrong information. But arts, it's a language, a language of emotion, a language we manage to heal your problem, to fix your problem through that science approach of the mirror neurons. And a piece of, of a work of art, according to a famous painter called Soulage, it must be three things. I mean, I take a painting, for instance, but it can be a music or a statue or a show, a play. 
it must be three things. First of all, it's the object himself, I mean the painting with the canvas and the frame. It must be the one who created it and the one who is looking at it. The three of them must be at the same time all together to create a work of art. If one is missing, you don't have any work of art. It means the creator is as involved as the audience in the work of art. And you have a kind of uh, back and backward, forward, backward exchange in the language of the creation through the creator and the audience. And of course, I have been influenced by the music in my life. Roger told you practically everything, but I don't know for what reason. I was born a composer. I can't, I can't tell you anything else. When I was a young kid, I did not understand the priest telling, yes, I heard a voice, you're going to be a priest and you're going to serve God. I did not understand that at all. But as a matter of fact, I realized that when I was two years old, there was a voice telling me, you're going to be a composer. That was the only thing I was able to do, I could do. And already, when I was four or five years old, I had at home, because my parents were Hungarian, I had at home three operas, Carmen Butterfly and The Tale of Hoffman, in records. In those days, it was a suitcase with 30 records, because you had to change size each four minutes. And I knew already them by heart. And to prove you at such po what point I was so obsessed by creation and being a composer, in 1949, I was five years old, my mother took me to Paris, and I went to see Butterfly. And at the end, I was totally bemused. At the end, they came for the curtain call to for the bird, and the people start to applause. And I asked my mother, but why are they giving applause? My mother told them that they had just seen the, the opera. I, said, I asked her, where is the guy who wrote it? She told me, but it was Puccini, and he's dead for a long time ago. And I, <laughs> I told her, why we don't have a picture of him coming, and everybody is giving applause to the composer and not to the singers. So I was already obsessed by that. <laughs> for me, it was the most important part. And after through my life, I'm not going to go through details because you know everything already, but I realized that my relation with music was something quite weird and strange and not very, very normal. Because three times in my life, I felt what a writer called Stendhal described as the syndrome of Firenze. I'm going to explain to you what it is later. But the first time, 
I was six, seven years old. And it was in my little town in Brittany, the opening. My brother, who is here tonight, you remember it. It was the opening of the first department store. We never saw it in our life. A department store with counters, they were selling food, clothes, uh, objects. We never saw it. It was called Utile in French. It was a big deal. And they were selling records, all records, but they were selling records. Shall I wait? At the Kremlin, no? Right, so they were selling records, and there was a lot of people. I was six years old, I was holding my mother's hand, and I was climbing the stairs, and suddenly, I heard something coming from the sky. And I was totally frozen. I didn't know what it was. My mother snapped me and told me, I told you never to leave, not to hold my hand in that crowd or you're going to be lost. <laughs> and many years after, I realized that I was listening to the low green prelude of violin. But that state of beyond yourself, of leaving your own body, not feeling very well at the same time, was something I well remember exactly the same. I remember practically 65 years after, I have the same sensation each time I'm listening to this music. The second time in my life, it's when I went, not very long ago, I went to see William Tell by Rossini. I knew, like everybody, the famous overture, because everybody knows that. And it's very long. It's quite boring sometimes. <laughs> so you're watching the, the lights, the cue, the sets everything, and suddenly, toward the end, it was written by Rossini, it's very Rossini, and suddenly, four minutes before the end, something did happen. I heard the music, I thought it was an alien, a flying saucer landing on stage. It was something that I never heard before. And it's at the moment when Switzerland is, is independent again. And the first word, because the words are very important. And I'm going to try to tell you, because you will understand after, what this music was ever, ever, never heard before. That's why the opera was not a big success. At the same time, and why it was such a revolutionary innovation, and why Rossini is a genius, and Rossini is Rossini. It was in 1829. So it started by, why today, my father, I miss so much your presence. Never before. 
a composer did achieve that. I mean, the vibration of the music was working with the vibration of the word and with the vibration of the ideas of the words. They never heard that. It's the first time. And it, it was looked like Rossini suddenly was able to look over the wall and to see what was happening for the next 80 years. It was the beginning of the real romanticism in opera that nobody heard before. And it was in 1829, Rossini was an immigrant, he was Italian, he was living in Paris, and he died in Paris in 1873. He wrote 39 operas. And what you heard are the last note of music he wrote in his life. He died when he was 76 years old. He was not 40 years old when he finished to write William Tell. And there is an American play, but the big mystery of the silence of Rossini, he wrote two little pieces of music. He, he wrote a, a very small little mass. It was a commission from Spain and a stab at matter, but very short, during the rest of his life. He never wrote any more opera. He has been writing 39 opera. He was at the top of his success, a great career. And he stayed in Paris writing no music during the rest of his life, during 36 years. Why? Maybe he thought that he can't do better than that. I don't know exactly. But this music for me was like a revelation. I, I just understood this day why Rossini was Rossini. And my last experience of that syndrome of Firenze, described by Stendhal, was one night I was passing in front of a theater in Paris, and I wanted to, I saw a little problem here. Okay. I saw a poster of uh, a Turkish pianist called Fazilsey playing with the Stuttgart Symphonic Orchestra, the Concerto Number no. Five by Beethoven. So I was there, starting to to listen to it. And it was wonderful. It was very well done. But music for me is as real as this glass. I can take the music, I can feel it, I can reduce the shape, I can pass my hand on the music and to know exactly the arc. And I was born like that, there is nothing else to say. <laughs> we. I don't have to explain to you the rest because you know everything from Roger, but <laughs> what I'm trying to do with the people 
I already did one session here, one workshop, because otherwise they're finishing the term on the 3rd of December, and I won't have time to do everything, because they present me 15 work, 15 works. So what I'm trying to do with them, it's a kind of not from uh, the average title you, you used to hear from page to stage. It's from brain to stage. It means what is to be a creator? In what state of mind you must be? If you can spend one day in your life, if you can spend one hour without thinking about your creation, please don't even start to do it because you won't do it. It's such a strange and difficult process. So what's to be a creator? What's the choice of a subject? And we are back to the catharsis. What is a good subject? What is a not good subject? For instance, I'm always taking the same example. If somebody tomorrow with a gun on my head tell me, you have to write a musical about Mussolini. I will never do the life of Mussolini from the day he was born until his death. Even his death was very spectacular with his mistress Clara Petacci on the big square in Milano. I will never do that. What I would do is the three days he spent in his office wondering if he has to condemn to death or not his son-in-law, the Count Ciano, with his daughter in front of him, kneeling and begging to save the life of her husband and the father of her children. That the three days I will choose if I had again with a weapon against my head to write a musical about, Pucci, about uh, Mussolini because that everybody is related to that kind of situation. What opposition, what to be there with your daughter begging and you have to decide that you condemn to death your son-in-law. Everybody feels that. That's the choice of a subject. Of course, I don't mean that it's a good subject, but that's what I will choose. So after, I will try to tell them that they have to work with constraints and not to work with comfort. You have to work with a certain amount of constraints to know that you have a limitation in time, in your situation. If you work in comfort, it's too, when you have too much time, everything is not right. Because even if you have three years to write something, at the last moment, you still miss one month. So to work with constraints, to find your own language, and again, to feel the huge gap between your intention as a creator 
and what is the reception of the audience. So, Stravinsky used to say that a real creator doesn't know what he's doing. That's totally true at the very moment. When you're writing something, you always think that you're writing Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 9, whatever you're doing. But when you're young, a few months after, you realize that it was nothing. At my age, take me five minutes. But at the very moment, you must believe that you're writing the most beautiful piece of work in the world. And finally, we are afraid today to lose our culture, our civilization, because invasion of hostile civilization. But a strong culture, a strong heart, a strong civilization can cope with it. There is some example, I'm not too long, Roger, I'm sorry. There is some example of disappearance of civilization. The civilization of the Mayas, the Viking living in Greenland, the civilization of the Pasqual Island was a big civilization with a wonderful culture that gave us the Moyas, those big statues that you know. The, those civilizations have completely disappeared. There is nothing else. So what's happening? When you're looking, when you're digging, sometimes you find traces of a civilization. You find a wall, a temple, something like that. So a civilization can disappear, but a culture can't. A culture never dies. Because when you are rediscovering a culture, the civilization is good for the museum. A culture, when it's rediscovered, when you're rediscovering a culture, it's still there with its power. That's what did happen to Picasso when he discovered the culture from Africa. To, uh, Giacometti, with his statue, when he discovered the culture from the Etruscan in Volterra in Tuscany. That's what did happen to Claude Debussy, the French composer, who was an average good composer and a music critic in newspaper. But of course, no one child when you ask him what do you want to do later, tell you, I want to be a critic. It doesn't exist that. They want to be composer, writer, but they don't want to be a critic in a newspaper. So Debussy was a decent composer. And in 1889, there was an international fair in Paris to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the French Revolution of 1789. So there were pavillons from all over the world, and there were the Indonesian pavillon, with an orchestra from Indonesia, from Java. 
called the gamelan. In an orchestra like a gamelan, you can have up to 30 musicians. But this music is the only traditional music in the world which is polyphonic. All the others traditional music are unison. It means Arabic music, Asian music, the singer is doing the same thing as the violin, as the flute, as the harp. It's unison. Gamelan, it's highly polyphonic and strangely polyphonic. Debussy was listening to harmonies he never heard in his life before. And from this technique of harmonization and everything, that's where he started to build his own music, was a huge influence on the rest of the 20th century. But in those days, of course, gamelan is not a music that you write. It doesn't exist. There is no score of gamelan. Because when you are in Java, you see sometimes some orchestra, and there is a man in front of his instruments, They're mainly old percussion with some flutes, but mainly percussion from the highest range to the lowest range. And you have father with the, with the children, three, four years old, sitting on their knees, putting their hands on the hands of the father and following the movement. That's how they learn and they, how they pass the tradition of the music. So for Claude Debussy, to hear that music with such a strange harmonies, polyphony, and that he never heard, he could never imagine. That's where he built his own music, his own language. And it was so influential that even Puccini, when he was writing Il Triptico in those three little opera, because the action was in Paris and he was a big fan of Debussy, he wrote it the the way of the Debussy. It means coming straight with the inspiration from the gamelan from Java. So a culture never dies. A culture is always there, as always is power. We are all the result of immigration. Every one of us. It started probably between 125,000 years, sometimes they say 2 million years, from the center of Africa, with an original population of 60,000 people of Homo sapiens, or maybe Homo erectus, they are not sure. But those people, they were only living of collecting what they found and hunting. The day they didn't have enough to survive, they started to move. And those 60,000 people, and for the moment you must know that they are trying to discover the original language. And at the moment there are two or three original languages, but they do not the original language. Because they realize that over 12,000 years, this original population spread all over the world to Australia, to America, and you find 
over 12,000 of years, the same drawing or the same basic drawing in South America, in the Incas and the Maya, and with in Australia. So we are all issued from the immigration. England is a country from the Vikings, from the Celtic population, excuse me, but from the French, mainly from Normandy too, as 30% of your words are French. So we are all from the immigration. And beware that today we are afraid of losing our values. But I think it's only the beginning of a new world because of the globalization and all the problems we, we have to face. We thought at the fall of the communist regime in 1989 that that's it, that's the last one. No, we're going to live in peace. And the world was simpler before, now it's more and more complicated. Now we have the Middle East, we have all the immigration problem. And once we're going to fix this problem of the Middle East and everything, or they will be fixed by themselves, there will be a new problem. You will have the problem of Asia, where you see that there is a lot of tension between China and all the countries around starting to build. That will be another problem we have to face. We will have the problem from Africa. We will have the problem that by probably 2100, the south of Italy, the south of Spain, the south of Sardinia will be desertic. They, want, they will not have agriculture at all. It means people will start to move and to go somewhere else. So we are at the beginning of a very long process of immigration. And that's not the end. And we will have to cope with this new world. But this new world, it's like the kanji in Chinese of crisis. There is two symbols to express crisis in Chinese. is danger and opportunity. Danger and opportunity in Chinese means crisis. So even in this new world of immigration, of changes, of a new population, you still have a hope that something good can come from. Because I really believe in the mankind. And I hope that something will happen in the future that it won't be so apocalyptic that what we think and that we describe today. I am an immigrant, certainly, and I'm very proud of my difference. And the people I'm working with, that's because we are different that we are richer. Because we all try to bring together what we have. And I'm standing here telling you what I think I know. I'm not completely sure. But my parents were immigrants from Hungary, a country who has been suffering centuries after centuries. 
My family, we don't have a family home in France. We don't have roots in France. And they are all scattered around the world, in Australia, in Canada, in America. But what did I find in England? First of all, my colleague, my partner, my friend, for more than 45 years, Alain Boublé and me, we, found, we met Cameron with Patricia McNaughton. She's here tonight. She was there in 83 when we met for the first time. And with Cameron McIntosh, we met in the British audience. And that's the British audience who gave us the success we knew with Les Miserables and Miss Saigon all over the world. It all started by the British audience being so good with us. That's why we decided not to stay in a country where we were pretending to be shoemakers when everybody was working barefoot. We decided to live in the country where we found a professional family in a country, England, where I found a second chance in my life to be in love, to have a family, to live among the people I love and I cherish just around me. And I hope that one day there won't be any Nigel Farage or somebody like that <laughs> telling me, take your suitcase and go back home. That's all I hope. But at the end, for me being here tonight in front of you, what do I feel? I feel that I can proclaim deeply, truly, definitely, I proclaim that tonight, here and now, speaking to you, I'm really at home. Thank you very much.